Hello and welcome to another para- episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is David Evitz and with me is uh, Neil Morrison. How are you, Neil? Very well, David. Thank you. And it's worth saying that this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Suzuki and the all-new Suzuki GSX-R1000 Superbike. And alongside Neil, we have Steve English, who is uh, who joined us at Silverstone. Uh, how are you, Steve? Very good, Dave. Good to be back on the show. Yeah, what was it like at uh, Silverstone for you, Steve? I mean, it's your first time at a GP for a while. Yes, first time at a GP since Coda. And I have to say, it was uh, great to be back in the paddock and great just to see how the championship has evolved this year. And when we look at it from a couch sitting at home, it's been one of the most exciting years ever. But uh, just going to Silverstone as well, it was great just to get back into the thick of things and uh, just see how everyone's riding, how the bikes have developed. It was a great weekend. Yeah, I mean, you chose a pretty good, uh, a pretty good weekend to come along. And uh, Neil, we had well, basically, we're off the back of two races. We um, somehow failed to get a uh, an Austria podcast out, but we uh, we've got two good races right now. Uh, how? Uh, what were your thoughts after the last couple of races? Yeah, my thoughts um, are that you know the, silver, um, the championship is really as exciting as as it has been um, throughout the year. Um, I thought after Austria, although Mark didn't win the race there, you know, his performance across the weekend, his strength um, in each of the free practice sessions and the fact that he took the race right to the way to the last corner, it made me think that really this is uh, this was his championship to lose. And I still do kind of think that. Um, but the fact that he, uh, he has a, a big DNF next to his name after the British Grand Prix, you know, really brings the other guys back into it. And, um, you know, five guys, 35 points, top three separated by 13, um, you know, with with Laurent, uh, sorry, with uh, Davizioso and Vinales, with real reason to look positive. Um, you know, we've got a really exciting conclusion ahead of us. Yeah, exactly. And also, of course, we we basically had two really, really close finishes um, uh, the past couple of races, two re- really tight races. Uh, Austria, obviously, the uh, final corner was pretty spectacular, but uh, even um, uh, even Silverstone was a very exciting and very uh, uh, tight finish. The race could have gone several ways. Um, but really, I mean... The we have to talk about Ducati because Ducati have really uh, made a huge step forward. Two wins in a row. Dovizioso leading the uh, uh, leading the championship again. Quite a remarkable uh, chain of events, really. Yeah, you'd have to say that uh, looking at uh, the season as a whole, I think everyone would have been quite surprised to have seen what Dovi's done over the last couple of rounds. But as the years really evolved, he's just been consistently impressive. And Dave, you've got an interview with Gigi Delinia as well on the website this week sort of delving into some of the elements that have helped Ducati. Uh, yeah, exactly. There was a, what, um, maybe last week or the week before, there was a lot of uh, a lot of noise about uh, Ducati having uh, using this new software called Mega Ride, which is supposed to be helping them to preserve tyres. Now, I spoke to Gigi Delini and he said that they're not using that software yet. They are... Uh, it's certainly something they're interested in, but this is just like another logical step in the progress they've been uh, they've been making. The past what three or four years they've been totally focused on uh, on tire management, and you know th- this is all uh, part to help them. But uh, the, the most interesting thing he said to me in the in the interview was uh, how the spec software is actually really helping Dovizioso because uh, it's basically favouring the. The, the, the smarter riders, the riders who can manage the who can manage a race rather than just uh, uh, you know the, the entire length of the race uh, because you can't just sort of like go out flat out all uh, all race because you end up burning up your tire. Um, in the past, what would happen is the proprietary software would um, 
manage tire wear for you, it would slow tire wear down. It would basically, you know, uh, keep on adjusting the electronics to actually uh, get the maximum out of the uh, uh, out of the tire. Now, uh, basically, riders have one or two. Uh, they either have one or two uh, engine maps and one or two engine braking maps uh, that they can switch at a particular time, and uh, that will then uh, and the rest they have to do themselves. They it's 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 nowhere near as sophisticated, and that has really played into the more sort of analytical and careful riders and Dovizioso is definitely one of those. Yeah, and he said after the race on Sunday at Silverstone that you know he definitely didn't have the outright speed. Well, he didn't think he had the outright speed to win the race, but he could see very early on that um, you know neither Marquez nor Vinales were pushing ahead at 100%. Both of them were keeping the last five laps of the race in mind, you know, through the first 15 laps, and therefore weren't going absolutely hammer and tongs. They were sort of just waiting, biding their time. And yeah, in some ways it was almost like uh, the race in Mugello where Davizioso he was there, and at first you didn't think he was that much of a threat. But then as the race went on, you only saw him getting stronger. And indeed, Marquez said that whenever Davizioso passed him, I think, you know, maybe around half race distance, he thought, this guy's the one that's got the pace and I have to follow him. And um, indeed, it was when Marquez was trying to, to keep, um, you know, Davizioso right in front of him that, uh, that his engine expired. Um, but, you know, I think it was another really, really intelligent performance from Davizioso in Silverstone and in Austria. Um, you know, Austria is a, is a track that's pretty heavy on fuel consumption. And, um, you know, Lorenzo had to be very careful with um, basically the amount of fuel he used. He had to change his, like, uh, his engine maps quite early in the race. And, um, you know, Davizio was a basically didn't have to change his engine mapping at all throughout the entire race because he was just conserving his tires until the end, even though he was following Marquez or when he was leading, he wasn't pushing at 100%. And through that sort of tire conservation policy, um, you know, the, the fuel economy didn't really come into it. And again, it was just a, a sign of him knowing exactly how to strategize and how to make the absolute most of the, the sort of tools that are available to him. Um, and, and really, it's, it's Davizioso's kind of his brains, um, his, his ability to think very clearly on the bike um, that has put him right in the, you know, right in the midst of this, of this title race, you know, and it's, it's fantastic to see. Yeah, and I think uh, that's always been one of the key calling cards for Davi right the way through from when he was in 125s, 250s, and all the way through his GP career. Like, if you look at the riders that he was always up against, in 125s, it was the likes of Pedroza, 250s, he had those championship battles with Lorenzo, and then in GP, he's never really had the best bike on the grid, but he's always been able to find ways to get himself to the front in each class. It's taken him longer in MotoGP, obviously, but he's been able to use that intelligence just to give himself that chance and this year is really the first time in, in in his premier class career that he's got one of the top bikes underneath him and he's really making it uh making hay while the sun shines yeah i mean the comments about tire management also reminded me a lot about um uh the saxon ring where what jonas volger said uh riding behind uh marcus was he saw how soon how quickly marcus was adapting his style to save his tires and it's quite clear that that's exactly what uh, that's exactly what Dovizioso has been doing, sort of uh, right from the start. And and like I say, I think the spec software has really played into his uh, his strength because he's just b much better at it. If we go back to Barcelona, you think about Barcelona. Um, uh, he won the Barcelona race um, at the test, sort of like three or four weeks beforehand, where he realised the track was in terrible condition and and the key was going to be about being fast in the last uh, sort of like five laps rather than the first five laps. Yeah, and you have to say, like over the last couple of race weekends. You know, Davizioso has never really 
been at the other than Austria and you know we know that that is more or less a Ducati track um, you know other than Austria you know you don't really see the Vizzo right at the front right at the sharp end in every free practice session every qualifying you know if you look at his qualifying record he's barely you know he's uh, I think he's only qualified on the front row a handful of times and you compare that to someone like uh, like Marquez or even like Vinales other guys that are in the title race He's just using the weekend as a whole. He, and he spoke again on, at, uh, on Sunday at Silverstone about how happy he is with how they're managing the weekend. And that's just basically like he's not always going out there to try and set the fastest time. He's just gradually working towards Sunday. And it's, you know, it's what you mentioned there, David, about Catalonia. He was doing that even from the, the private test that Ducati had, uh, I think, two weeks before the, the race in Barcelona. You know, he was just... Again, I think he was like sixth fastest or something in that test. You know, the lap time, the final outright lap time isn't even entering into his mind. You know, he's just working solidly, incrementally towards that Sunday, um, towards the, you know, the, the race on Sunday. And, um, you know, it's paying off for him at the moment. Yeah, that's exactly what Delinia said. He said it, it's not about being fast over a single lap. It's about being, it's about making a... Uh, making the race in as short a time as possible, which is, you know, about 20 laps or 25 laps or 30 laps or however long the uh, the race is, you know, the single lap time is just, I mean, it, it's nice, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and I think that's also backed up by how he's approached races as well. If you look at the season as a whole, Davi spent most of the year in, I think, fifth or sixth position out on track, but then just gradually easing his way up into the podium spots in those closing stages of the race and just making use of the tyre as it wears, as other people's, uh, tyres seem to struggle a little bit more. Davi was able to pick them off. And I think uh, Vinales and Marquez have led more laps than him, but I don't think anyone's been in podium places more than him. Yeah, and I think um, after the race in Austria, one of the reasons why I was so convinced that Marquez was going to win it was because he had really built up a sizable advantage over Vinales. And I was looking towards the final sort of third of the year and looking at tracks like Aragon, like Phillip Island and Valencia and thinking, well, you know, Davizioso historically hasn't really gone well there. And Ducati, especially like Aragon, um, and you could maybe even say uh, Valencia to an extent, you know, hasn't always gone well there. Whereas Marquez, more or less, is just strong everywhere. Um, but, you know, after after the British Grand Prix, I'm, I'm thinking I might have to revise that because, you know, Silverstone wasn't really a track that suited Ducati historically, even though it's a fast and open track. There's a lot of very high-speed changes of direction. We know that Ducati isn't one of the easiest bikes to, to manhandle on the grid. And indeed, last year, you know, both of both of uh, Ducati's riders uh, Davizioso and Iannone you know complained of the sort of physicality of, of the race and, and I think indeed Iannone crashed because he was having arm pump trying to manhandle the bike around um, you know you look now at, at these things and you think you know Davizioso in this form and Ducati having made these kind of intelligent and incremental improvements um, you know maybe there, maybe there won't be uh bogey tracks for them in, in the coming six races because really until now well since Mugello they've been strong everywhere you know Barcelona wasn't a track that historically suited them but you know they won there Lorenzo was fourth had a great race um, Silverstone in the past was the same um, Davids was a one there and Lorenzo was what three seconds from the race win so you know I think a true test might be somewhere like Aragon where they haven't you know they really had have had bad races in the past, but um, but yeah, I'm starting to think that um, you know Japan are going to be strong pretty much at everywhere we go to from now on. Uh, I think there is uh, there is one shared characteristic between all of these uh, all of the tracks where Dovi's won, and they're all high speed tracks. They're all fast tracks. Obviously, Mugello is just blistering fast. Barcelona is a fast track with some slow sections. Uh, uh, Austria again. Uh, very very fast track all about top, top speed uh, Silverstone is also a fast track but again like you say Neil uh, lots and lots of fast changes of directions and obviously they found a way to manage the uh, uh, ma uh, manage the changes of directions but while still 
sort of maintaining their their top speed advantage. I think the the places where Ducati are really going to struggle are Valencia. So I mean, if the if the championship came down to Valencia with the, with Dovi leading by a couple of points, then I think they they could be they could be in real trouble. But um, certainly, it's interesting. There's plenty of places where uh, where they're going to be fast. Yeah, and, um, and also if you look at last year, um, I remember David Souza was so happy after the Sepang race, not just because he had won in Sepang, but because they had been strong in each of the three flyaways, Philip Island. Yeah. I think he was fourth. He'd always kind of struggled there, and he had the podium at Mateki, and then obviously winning at Sepang. So, um, you know, it, it was I guess from the flyaways last year that Davizio was really kind of came into this this sort of form that he's in now, you know, and started to show that you know he he is a real player at the front of this uh, MotoGP championship. The thing was, it's not just Dovizioso, it's all of Ducati, because uh, Lorenzo in the last two races has also been really very strong. He finished fourth in uh, in Austria, he finished fifth in um, uh, at Silverstone, he was seven seconds behind in um, uh, in Austria, and he was three, what, three and a half seconds, something like that, behind at, uh, at Silverstone. He's not close to winning but he's getting closer all the time which means obviously I think I think a lot of that is down to 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 Lorenzo sort of starting to understand the uh, uh, trying to understand it and also especially the uh, having the wings having the wings on the on the bike has really made a big difference for him because he can feel that the aerodynamic feature Dave not wings okay it's an aerodynamic <laughs> feature <laughs> not wings sorry yes the having the aerodynamic package on the bike <laughs> Uh, uh, yes, we at uh, Austria, uh, the uh, uh, me, you, and Pete McLaren all had a, a conversation with uh, with Danny Aldridge about this, and he was very, very uh, uh, keen to say that uh, uh, we can't call them winglets because they're not winglets; they're actually something very, something uh, very different. Well, they're not something very different; they're exactly the same, but that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, clearly, having these the, this aerodynamic package has made a big difference to Lorenzo because it means you know that basically the front wheel is touching the ground. There's pressure on the front wheel and he, he's, he's regained a lot of confidence in the front end so uh, as I say it's not just Dovizioso Dovizioso is really just being exceptional um, but also the bike is clearly making progress and getting better yeah and what a package that's going to be you know next year you think when you know Davizioso has basically been saying from preseason that you know this turning issue that they've talked about for years and years is is still their weakness, and you have to imagine that going into this winter, um, that will be the the absolute top of the priority list. And with Lorenzo kind of you know finding this you know recent form, I know he had a bad race at Brno, but he thought he had the potential for a podium at least. Um, I thought he had a really good race in in Austria, and then as you said, David, you know three point five seconds off in uh, at Silverstone. Um, you know, he is getting closer and you just think there's going to be just something where it really clicks and he's going to be maybe not devastating, but I think a consistent front runner. Yeah, for me, Neil, that was one of the key things, just like to watch Lorenzo compared to when I've seen him on the Ducati other times. Like obviously the Valencia test last year, we were at the Phillip Island test, myself and yourself, Neil, Coda and now Silverstone. And he just looks more and more fluid, more and more comfortable on it. But once that tire still starts to drop... He doesn't look as fluid. So if he can keep getting that bit more out of the tire and let, let it last a little bit longer each time, that's what's going to let him make that uh, little step that he needs. He doesn't need to make a massive step. As you said, Like the, the gap to that front keeps coming down for him, so he is making progress on it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, to say something really quite insane, I can see, you know, Valencia has never historically been a, uh, a Ducati track, but I can totally see uh, Lorenzo winning at, uh, at Valencia because he's the, he's such a confidence rider, basically. He's so strong at every track where he feels comfortable. Every um, uh, That seems to be the almost the biggest deciding factor. If he comes to a track he likes, then he's fast. If he's at a track he doesn't like, then he's slow. Um and just the, the there is a slight lack of confidence in the Ducati, and that's what's magnifying his own sort of feeling on the bike. Before we move on to the next segment, David, I want to lock you in. Ten pounds says Lorenzo doesn't win at Valencia. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, I would need very very good odds on winning at uh, on, on Lorenzo uh, winning at uh, Valencia. But let's just say it wouldn't surprise me if he won at Valencia, although. It would absolutely shock me if Dovizioso won at uh, Valencia. You know, um, it's just like I say, it's a confidence thing. It's a total, total confidence thing. Right. Well, uh, that's uh, enough for one segment. Um, uh, we shall be back after the break, where we shall talk about the other motorcycles on the grid. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Suzuki and the all-new Suzuki GSX-R1000. Featuring MotoGP-derived technology, the new GSX-R1000 has variable valve timing for optimal peak horsepower without sacrificing any low-end or mid-range torque. The new GSX-R1000 also features advanced electronics, such as an inertial measurement unit, adjustable power output via the ride-by-wire, Suzuki traction control, and a twin spar aluminum frame that is 10% lighter and more compact than the previous model. The new Suzuki GSX-R1000 also has aerodynamic bodywork that is both sleek and stylish. Be sure to check out the all-new 2017 Suzuki GSX-R1000 at a racetrack or Suzuki dealership near you. And we are back, and uh, we need to talk about uh, the progress made by Yamaha especially, but also uh, Honda. There was a test between um, uh, Austria and Silverstone where everyone except Suzuki went and uh, to, you know tested. Most of them were working basically on uh, bikes, but Yamaha seemed to be testing all sorts of things. Uh, Neil, tell us what Yamaha were testing at Misano. Well, if you listen to the riders, uh, Maverick Vinales, and Valentino Rossi, they would tell you that they were testing electronic settings. Um, yeah, but you never listen to the riders because the riders basically spend most of their time lying to you. Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, we were kind of writing up our stories over the weekend saying like, oh, wow, they've made such great progress with uh, with electronics because after all, the race in Austria, really Yamaha, both riders sort of pinpointed the electronics as a reason why their races kind of went, uh, you know, went awry um, I guess is the polite way of putting it. Um, you know, their their bikes were spinning on corner exit a lot after maybe the 10 laps or 15 laps mid-race distance. And, um, yeah, neither Vinales nor Rossi could, could keep up with uh, with the front three or four, you know, the Ducatis and Repsol Honda, but they also couldn't keep up with Johan Zarco's Tech Twa Yamaha, which was, uh, you could really tell that was something that annoyed Rossi a lot because anytime Rossi's been asked about uh, Zarco and his speed this year, you could see it really irks him. You know, there's something <laughs> deep down where he's just like, that shouldn't be happening. Um, so, yeah, so um, after Austria, Vinales really spoke of the need for Yamaha to, to try something big. They, only something big could kind of rescue their world championship. 
And uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's difficult difficult to know. I don't think anyone knows for sure at this moment, other than you know the people that that work within Yamaha. Um, there were obviously rumors on Sunday night at Silverstone that uh, both Rossi and Maverick were racing with uh, Yamaha's 2018 chassis, and which they had tested tested at Misano. Um, which, assuming I'm, you know, I'm guessing that both of the guys liked so much that they thought, right, this is this is a, this is it. We should we should ride with this from now on. Um, and I don't know. There's obviously maybe been a few parts from Olin's thrown um, thrown in Yamaha's direction as well. I saw um, Matt Oxley wrote an article about uh, about Valentino Rossi's championship hopes uh, for motorsport. I think uh, motorsport magazine and um, Mike Norton, who is Valentino Rossi's Olin's technician, wrote underneath that uh, there wasn't just uh, electronics. There was some uh, aluminium bits as well thrown at him. So I'm assuming that that means. Uh, Olin's had uh, had some new suspension parts. You you thought it might have been a, a rear suspension linkage or something like that, David? Yeah, I mean it's anything from a, a rear suspension linkage to a swing arm to a to a complete chassis. So um, all of those parts are made of uh, of aluminium. So um, yeah. uh, d- 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 take your pick. I think because this is about tire management, I suspect that I would suspect a swing arm. But I mean, what do I know? It's a it's a guess. But obviously, they made a, such a huge step forward, and it's almost like they're catching back up again. There is there is uh, throughout the championship, uh, you know, there is always like a toing and froing of development. Uh, we saw Maverick uh, Vinales win the first two races, and and Yamaha looked very, really strong in the first part of the championship, uh, and then they just seem to go backwards while everyone else, uh, uh, Honda and, and and Ducati, have overtaken them. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, now they're they're starting to come back up uh, to cash back up again. Yeah, and they do need to make a fairly drastic change. That's where most of the rumors did se- tend to come from. But if you look back over the last few years, Yamaha did bring in a new frame this time in 2015. Last year, they made some pretty sizable upgrades as well. So it's in line with what they have been doing in the past as well, just to try and, and push forward, even whenever they had a good bike in the past. Yeah, you've normally got that, that I think it's around Aston, isn't it, where they, they normally bring a new chassis. Um, and yeah, it's 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 just interesting because, you know, I think we've maybe spoken about this on a, on a previous pod, how there almost seemed to be a sort of like struggle for power, um, you know, between the two riders in, in movie star Yamaha, you know, Vinales was, was pushing for one development direction and Rossi basically felt that that wasn't really within the the realms of the philosophy of the M1 how it should handle historically he is a he's a very clear idea of what the M1 should do and you know Maverick is a little bit more aggressive with the brakes with the with the throttle um Rossi felt that this wasn't you know if Yamaha were following Maverick's direction it wasn't helping him especially in corner entry um but you know um you could see uh, on the race in the race on Sunday that Maverick chose a soft uh, rear tire. Um, he obviously had to conserve that tire, you know, through different parts of the race. But in the final five laps, he had quite a quite a gap to make up on Davizioso, and he really set about, um, you know, reeling him in. And I think he he was uh, he didn't quite set his, his personal best lap in the final lap of the race, but it was a tenth of a second off his personal best lap, and he got within you know a tenth of Davizioso. So. Judging by that performance, you could say that, uh, that the changes that they made in, in, in Mizano definitely um, had some effect. You know, Rossi led most of the race, I think, all but maybe three or four laps. And, um, you know, he said he was just lacking in those three or four laps. But I don't know whether that was because of rear tire wear or, or what. He just said that he didn't have anything left to, uh, to pass to Vizioso whenever he came by. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it does make you wonder how much of the internal power struggle in the Yamaha garage has set them back during the uh, during the year because there really did seem to be an awful lot of um, uh, well, whatever Valentino said, Maverick disagreed with, and whatever Maverick said, uh, Valentino disagreed with, and they seem to be disagreeing with one another more on principle than any uh, anything else. I also spoke to two members of rival teams, and they. Uh, both seemed to be uh, well. They they both assumed that, that that the atmosphere in the in the Movistar Yamaha garage was pretty terrible at the moment. But uh, there was a real internal battle going on. We were hearing stuff on at Silverstone that you know Maverick really isn't uh, pleased with the situation um, at all. Unsurprisingly, yeah, I mean you know he's finding out what it's like to, to be Valentino Rossi's teammate. It's um, well the only people that Maverick. And and Valentino Rossi is no different to any other rider in the, uh, in that extent. The only people that people, uh, the only riders that riders like uh, Rossi are happy having as uh, as teammates are people they know they can beat. Um, and no one really wants someone uh, uh, because we saw exactly the same when Lorenzo joined uh, uh, joined Yamaha. Um, we it's a problem which I think Honda are going to face when um, uh, when Danny Pedrosa decides to go and do something else um, because you can't just slot anyone you like into alongside Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez is going to have a very big uh, 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 say in all this, um, unless of course he departs with KTM. But that's an entirely different subject <laughs> altogether. Uh, Can I just? Yeah, I'm it's, just... A, it's a, it, it's a t- it, it's a typical problem. It's the typical kind of problem that that teams have to manage. There's one thing that, that you know I think is is quite interesting, um, and I'm just wondering, you know, have Yamaha made a really big step forward, or is it just the fact that we were racing at Silverstone, which has historically been quite a kind track to Yamaha, um, has plenty of those fast changes of direction which really suit the the M1, um, and that we had you know rear tires, three rear tires which had you know quite a lot of grip, and you know didn't seem to you know we, it wasn't as if we were at a track where it was you know the track temperature exceeded 40 degrees um you know michelin's tire allocation was very very hard to withstand these temperatures and therefore you know i think mizano could be a could be a more uh, you know a more difficult test of, of you know just how far yamaha have come i think it's maybe slightly premature to say that these changes that they made in mizano are, are you know basically the um you know they've they've cured everything um, i'm not too sure about that because i think you know this could be like le mans where you know it's just it's one of those tracks that really works well for the yamaha guys um you know the temperatures aren't too high and the surface is fairly grippy and and the layout really suits the bike yeah and i think the one thing as well neil that you have to take into account is the weather this year at silverstone was very different to what anyone expected too so whether anyone actually had an ideal rear tire for them as well for Michelin, given how that Michelin works in different operating temperatures, you could have it as well. That just because it was that much hotter, everyone was a little bit under the cosh with the rear tire as well. So as you said, it's easy to read into one round and think a solution's been found, but it's really going to be between Silverstone, Misano and Aragon that you get a true picture. Mm. Uh, I, I think if that's under the cosh, I'd hate to see what things like uh, things like when they're really bad because the tyres which Michelin bought saw a the first sub two minute lap of Silverstone they saw a new uh, lap record and they saw a new race record so clearly the tyres worked at, at Silverstone again as you say Steve the weather was a big factor because everyone had enough time to actually set everything up there was uh, we lost no it was just glorious uh, no one lost any time during practice because the because the, the the weather was good I think to return to Neil's point about you know is this really such a big step forward uh, I think it's a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything yes 
Silverstone really, really suits the Yamahas. Um, uh, it sort of like plays to their strengths. But uh, I think they also made uh, a step with the electronics, and they probably also made a step with some kind of uh, with some kind of hardware, with some kind of you know frame chassis updates. So we shall well we we shall have to wait and see, and I think yeah, wait till Mizano and see what happens there. Yeah, for for me, David, all I was meaning was that if we typically have twenty five degrees track temp at Silverstone, Mitch then take a tire that's to deal with twenty five degrees or thirty degrees, would have been in that much harder maybe the allocation that they brought wasn't the ideal one everyone sort of put into a little bit of a different position than we'd normally see and that's where over the next few rounds that's where we'll really see if the changes for the Yamaha have made that step forward yeah agreed I think uh, obviously Misano is going to be difficult because uh, again everyone has tested very recently at Misano so everyone is going to be prepared uh, Aragon uh, Yamaha have tested recently I think Think, well, they, I think they tested before the summer at Aragon, um, and so they have a, a, you know a general sense of what's going on at Aragon, um, uh, and also it's a pretty good track for Yamaha overall uh, uh, Aragon. So yeah, it but weather conditions can be very very tricky at Aragon. So we we shall have, wait and see. I think that that's going to be a good uh, a good measure. Um, I think we also have to talk about Honda. Um, uh, Mark Marquez was well first of all he becomes the first person to uh, uh lap Mizar or lap silverstone in in under 2 minutes in a truly astonishing um uh, uh a truly astonishing qualifying lap and he was looking strong and making progress um uh, in the race so well, what four or five six laps to go he starts to move forward and all of a sudden his engine goes bang yeah it was something truly remarkable um and i think we were we were trying to remember on sunday evening just when the last time was we saw uh, one of the factory hondas expiring in such a way in uh, you know a moto gp race i think we said it was uh, philip island 2007 for nicky hayden when he was uh, challenging for a podium position so you know this really is a, a once every decade kind of uh, occurrence you know really quite unlucky the timing of it especially um but, you know, I think Mark's performance over the weekend showed that, you know, he is in really, really, really strong shape at the moment. Um, he, after the race in Austria, he spoke about finding that sweet feeling, you know, that he's been lacking because he was fast through preseason. He was fast in the opening couple of races, but he spoke about, he often said that he wasn't quite sure why he was fast. You know, he, he said he just didn't feel that confident that comfortable on the bike and we saw it especially with the crashes in Argentina and in France that he was just lacking a little bit of something um, a little bit understanding with that front tyre um, but uh, but you know they had the test in, in Brno over the summer break and, and you know Mark was just fantastic at Brno and in, in Austria I think that was probably the best he's ridden all year um, and you know I think He's obviously very annoyed, and this is very unfortunate that uh, that this happened. It's blown the championship wide open, but I think Mark can take real heart from the last three-week race weekends. Um, indeed, the last four race weekends, if you count Saxon Ring in there as well. And, um, you know, he's going to be strong absolutely everywhere. I'm convinced of that in the, uh, you know, in the championship running. Yeah, and I think, Neil, like you mentioned earlier on, just about whether or not you'd be willing to change your view on Mark for the championship. This is the, you know, it's been a long time since anyone has won a title with three retirements, but uh, when you 98. look at how strong he has, ha, yep, ninety-eight, and uh, when you look at how strong he has been, it really is just a case of of building on things. And just looking at, like I mentioned, the stat about Dovi spending most of the year in P6. Mark has led has led the most laps. He spent the most laps in the podium, so he's still going to be there or thereabouts pretty much every week through the rest of the season. 
And now it's just going to be a case of whether or not anyone's really able to bring the consistent fight to him. He's given them a little bit of a head start, but when you look at some of the tracks coming up, he'd still would be putting them down as your pound for pound favourite. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he really is quick. I mean, to me, the question is, uh, I mean, obviously they made a really big step forward in um, uh, at the Bruneau test over the summer. Um, they also had a test again at Misano where they worked on the electronics and some setup stuff. It, but, but it really does feel like they've, they've changed the balance of the bike. It's not so front end uh, focused anymore because uh, which was... You know, the the bike was built around, basically built around the front, uh, uh, around the Bridgestone, which you could punish to uh, to within an inch of its life. And the, you just can't do that with the Michelin. You have to use more of the uh, the the rear of the bike, and and the bike is is becoming a little bit less of a of a handful to ride. It's um uh, it's accelerating a bit better. Uh, it's not you know wanting to wheelie uh, all the time. So it, it it's it's becoming a little bit easier for Marquez to handle. Yeah, Marquez has also changed his riding style to adapt to that. You know, he said. Um, that he used the there was a, a you know one day test after the the race in Brno at Brno um, and Mark said he basically spent that entire day trying to work on acceleration and how he could make the bike accelerate better and you know we had spoken to Cal Crutchlow over the race weekend at uh, at the Red Bull Ring in Austria he said you know usually when you look at the data of the two Repsol guys Danny because of his weight and because of his riding style you know he picks he's so good at picking the bike up and you know shooting it out of a corner um, whereas Mark is usually as you said David you know just brilliant at, at putting it into the corner you know parking this on its uh, you know front wheel and just taking it all the way in um, but Cal was saying that you know even at Austria uh, Mark had you know developed his style to ensure that he was exiting the corner even with with better uh, better speed better drive than Pedroza um, you know so Mark, it hasn't just been kind of Honda. Uh, they've obviously been improving and, and changing, changing the balance of the bike, but Mark, I think, has been absolutely brilliant at um, changing his style to get the most out of that. Yeah, because that was the most remarkable thing about Austria, the fact that what you saw was the Ducatis were out breaking the Hondas and the Hondas were out accelerating the Ducatis. Uh, and th- this is completely, it's completely unheard of. Um, you know, it's totally different. It's supposed to be the other way around. Before it was always, you know, the Ducati gained everything on corner exit and, uh, and Honda made everything on corner entry. But it seems to be the reverse there. So clearly, uh, you know, both factories have been working in, in different directions and certainly, um, uh, you know, Honda have made a really big step forward in that uh, uh, in acceleration and in in getting off of uh, off corners. Yeah, and uh, for me, David, that's been one of the key things just to notice from the outside looking in. Like, obviously, for the five or six years I was in the paddock, you'd look at Honda and they spent all their time just focusing on building a really strong engine, and they wouldn't they wouldn't look at the elements that the bike was quite weak in. Whereas now, over the last year, eighteen months, it does look like there has been more of a concerted effort to try and improve on the weaknesses just like it has been with the other manufacturers as well and it sort of brings everything back towards a mean which is usually what happens whenever you've got stability and regulations and different things like that and we do have everyone sort of just graduating now towards pretty much the exact same time from all the bikes and everything getting a bit more similar and how they make that lap time obviously some of the bikes still stronger in different areas but it's been interesting just to to see in Silverstone for me like going trackside watching you could see a big difference in the bikes compared to Silverstone last year. Like I only get to a couple of races a year now, so it's you know there is actually a lot that happens between the rounds for me. So you're able to see big changes in terms of how that development path has gone for the teams as well. As you say, it's stability and regulations. We're in the second year of mission is because obviously you know uh, tires are the biggest issue in everything. 
Um, so we've had we've had sort of stable tyres. Uh, we've had stable uh, electronics. Uh, the teams are getting better. I think uh, teams the, the factories especially made a really really big step over the winter with the uh, with the electronics, uh, just because they had a year's worth of data. So um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very valid point. Things are starting to come closer uh, closer together again. Also in terms of sort of like riding and stuff because of um uh, just. Everyone has got more data. Everyone has more of an idea of what's going on, and uh, we're starting to see Michelin motorcycles rather than uh, rather than Bridgestone motorcycles. Um, I, th- I think a quick word on Danny Pedrosa because Danny Pedrosa had an absolute nightmare at Silverstone, but that seemed to be mainly down to the bumps, wouldn't you say? Yeah, pretty much. You know, the Silverstone track is, uh, you know, I think along with uh, Cota, uh, Argentina, maybe Barcelona as well. You know, probably the worst, the worst track in the calendar for bumps. Um, and you know, Pedrosa being um, just over fifty kilograms and very, very small, um, just you know, find that very, very difficult to manage. Um, you know, it was something we saw in Argentina as well. That Pedrosa just had a really tough weekend trying to control the bike. Um, and as he said, especially in corner entry or sorry, corner exit. You know, just the bike was just all over the place and he found it really difficult to manage. Um, and they tried a whole number of things to try and rectify that. And he was absolutely nowhere on Saturday, I think, in free practice for, you know, he was outside the top 20 and it just looked like this was going to be a total write-off. Um, he managed to salvage, I think, a, a third row um, starting position in qualifying, which was quite a good effort considering where he had been, you know, just uh, half an hour before that. And um, and then he said he actually overnight um, they just reverted the bike completely to what how it was set up um, in Austria, and he said that you know it actually found somewhere in the region of you know zero point seven zero point eight per lap, um, and and with that pace he was able to you know more or less uh, stick with uh, with Jorge Lorenzo and Johan Zarco in that fight for well sixth it was but then when Marquez retired it was for fifth, um, you know when he came home in seventh so you know it definitely wasn't it wasn't a good weekend for Pedrosa considering he's in that title title fight um, but it was uh, very much a damage limitation job. And he did quite well, actually, to get a, to get a seventh place at the end of it. Right, that'll be the end of uh, that section. Uh, when we come back, we shall move on to Moto2 and Moto3 and talk about our winners and losers. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. And hello and welcome back. Now, there, there's more to life than MotoGP, but not much more. Um, uh, Moto2 and Moto3. First of all, uh, the Moto2 race, it... I sort of stopped paying attention for five minutes because it looked like uh, it looked like we were going to have a, a, a rather tedious Moto Two race, but it it turned out that once again it got quite interesting, didn't it? Did indeed. Yes, it looked like uh, it was going to be a, an Alex Marquez romp after uh, two laps, um, but uh, yeah. We, we basically saw him get reeled in by his teammate Franco Morbidelli and then we saw that uh, the fact that both of the, the Mark VDS guys had sped away from the field at quite some pace in the opening laps uh, really worked against them because um, you know towards the end they really didn't have anything well Morbidelli didn't really have anything to um, to counter the, the advancing um, Takanakagami and Matteo Pessini 
and uh, we saw Nakagami, who has, let's face it, been absolutely nowhere this year, bar Aston. Uh, he has had just a woeful season. Um, he's managed to get a MotoGP deal somehow out of that. And uh, and this was the first time that we saw the sort of Nakagami, the, you know, the, the rider we know Nakagami can be. Um, and, you know, he rode really well, even though Pacini, I think, you know, put in a very spirited, uh, you know, final uh, couple of laps. And had it not been for a really, really terrible start from pole position, I think he could have won that race as well. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was, a, it was a good race all around. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on there, really, Neil. It looked like we could have had that Mark VDS battle, then obviously that didn't happen. Then it looked like Nakagami could have been caught up. But Dave, as you said, it looked like it had all the hallmarks of another Moto2 race that just sort of happens. But uh, this season, we've actually had an awful lot of really interesting Moto2 races. And this was another one where it all sort of came together and, and we had tension. We didn't really have anything on track where it was immense between anyone but we we did have a little bit of uncertainty through it and Nakagami did well to come through and take the win I think afterwards in the press conference he said it was really important to get this win and start to prove the doubters wrong because Neil as you said it's been a miserable year for him if you look at his Moto2 career he's always been able to flash but never been able to really show that consistency that he needs maybe now for the final third of the season he'll try and uh, up that yeah, I mean, it's, the, the the normal procedure is that uh, you announce you're going to MotoGP uh, the the weekend after you had a really good race, but um, they sort of got it the other way around this time. Um, my thought about Moto2 is it makes you wonder what Mattia Pacini would have been capable of if if he'd got a much better start to to the season because he's he's been just spectacularly good all uh, all year really. Yeah. Uh, although the, the you know the last what five six seven races since no really from since really from Perth I guess um, from the third yeah. race of the year and even. If you look at the first three races of the year, he had been there in qualifying in free practice. He had shown pace through that weekend, but he just crashed in each of the first three races and, and uh, you know, sort of threw away the potential that he had shown. Um, so, yeah, I kind of interviewed him after, um, when was it, in Austria. And he had said, that, you know, had it not been, if he had just kind of rode around and collected, you know, fourth, fifth places at Qatar, Argentina and America, he would have been second in the championship. Um, and it's difficult to really argue with that. Um, so, you know, Matea, I think, uh, can look to award 2018 and, and really think about going into that season as a, as a, one of the championship favourites. I was just going to say if, if anyone hasn't read that uh, Pacini interview you can find it on Crash.net and you really must read it because it's uh, just spectacularly good. Why thank you. Yeah I think there was one quote Neil uh, just about riding with your balls not your brain. Your arm, yeah. You don't ride the bike with your ball. With ugh, sorry, you don't ride the bike with your arms. You ride it with your balls, which is uh, which is great because, of course, Matea had a, I think, um, you know, back as a childhood motocross rider, he had a really bad accident um, and uh, sort of had very bad nerve damage on his right arm. And if you if you even if you see his right arm now, it is considerably smaller um, than his left one. And um, you know, and, and and for years, Matea had to sort of counter um, the, the sort of accepted belief that uh, that was basically going to um, work against him and you know moto 2 bikes were too heavy for for uh, for him in that condition um, and i think you know he's he's been very very he's become very tired of having to explain um over the years that that really isn't an issue for him um so uh, yes I'd love to see Pacini on a bike with a seamless gearbox because, you know, he's, he's, he's having to use the clutch a lot on a Moto2 bike and um, uh, with a seamless gearbox, that would put him out of, um, you know, it, it would mean he wouldn't have to use it. It would be it'd be quite interesting. But I don't think he does use the clutch, does he? On the No, on he the... doesn't. No, he doesn't. But he's, I, I still think it's a disadvantage, the fact that uh, he, he can't really manage the uh, up and down shifts the way that he can on a uh, uh, the, the, 
the, the way that you can with the, with the clutch because a lot of riders are using the clutch to back uh, to, mm. to control the rear wheel going going into the corners. Yeah, and he can't really do that. And it would be like I say, it would be interesting to see him where he doesn't need to use it. Sure. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago was where most of the riders they'd only use the clutch though if they were like dumping down multiple gears, and they just let it go down from fifth to third or second, and then just dump the clutch out. But for most of the riders now, they seem to have just stopped doing that as well. So maybe it's not as much of a handicap now for Pacini as it would have been a couple of years ago as well. I think like the one th- key thing to that's easy to forget about Pacini is how good he was as a one two five rider. He won one of his first two fifty races as well. Jumped onto a Moto two bike was pretty quick as well at times. And like he's always had that speed, always had that talent. But as you said, Neil, it's just sort of all come back together for him again, just to be able to put it together this year, and then hopefully then for next year he can start the season as a genuine title contender and we should have an, another good year in Moto2 next year. Yeah, and he's with an Italian team. He's got, uh, you know, he's got his crew chief and his telemetry guy are, are two guys that he worked with back in his 125 and 250 days. Um, the, he feels that the team is built around him. All the members of the team believe in him and he says, you know, he kind of admits that he is a character that needs that. He's uh, obviously quite sensitive and, you know, needs someone to put a, an arm around his shoulder, you know, in the sort of the, the, the days where it's not going going so well. Um, and he's kind of got this structure now, which is built pretty much entirely around him. Italtrans, I think of, you know, uh, Andrea Locatelli on the other side of the garage and he's not really doing much. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty much gear around Pacini and, and, and what he needs to be fast and um, you know if, I think he, he said he was 99.9% confirmed for 2018 to confirm with the Taltrans um, and that, that's definitely the sort of environment that he thrives in yeah, I mean, to me, it's proof that you don't actually ride the bike with your balls. You ride it with your brain, and it's really is. Um, uh, it's really that is where Pasini is being so strong. Yeah. Uh, again, Morbidelli finishes third. Uh, Morbidelli looks like he's, uh, you know, it hasn't really lost any ground in the in the championship. Uh, in fact, I think he extended his lead because uh, because Luti had a uh, had a bad weekend. So, um, yeah, Morbidelli's uh, march towards the Moto2 title uh, continues. Moto3, Juan Mir didn't really, it didn't really work out for him. But uh, again, Juan Mir still managed to do extremely well. But that was perhaps because the race was red flagged on the penultimate lap. Yeah, we had a bad crash on the, on the, on the penultimate lap, as you said, David. And uh, just it takes the results back the previous lap. And a few guys got out of jail with it. Canet picks up the win and uh, it was one of those instances that you tend to see it uh, whenever anything like this happens in the media centre. Everyone ends up thumbing through a rule book. Everyone ends up having a bit of a panic trying to figure out what happened. But uh, it robbed us of a great last lap in, in Moto3, unfortunately. But uh, we've got enough of them every every weekend, really, in Moto3. So, uh, you know, this one was just one where it didn't quite fall right for a lot of riders. But we still had a good race throughout. We, yeah, we saw guys like... Um you know, guys like that hadn't really featured towards the front, uh, you know, on the final lap, maybe getting out of jail, perhaps someone like Enea Bastianini, who has had a pretty rubbish season. Um, you know, he finished second overall. Maybe he wouldn't have finished in that position on the final lap, um, especially with Juan Mir, who was fifth, I think. Um, you know, with another lap, we know how good he is there. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was good. it was a good race. It was a frantic race until then. And it was just a bit of a shame, as you said, Steve, that it got prematurely ended. Um, but uh, but yeah, Mir absolutely, I think is uh, is nailed on for that title. Um, it's going to take a, a minor miracle only to to stop him. Yeah, Mir's not going to be caught in this one. But it was tough to catch the lead group as well. At one stage, I think there was what twenty four bikes within about two seconds at one stage. So it was easy enough just to 
seesaw up and down through it. And that's really where the likes of Mir, they make their money. He's consistently able to make sure he's in that front of that group and in the right position. As you said, it didn't quite work out because the red flag, but given a last lap shootout, you'd imagine he would have been right there or thereabouts. He'll go to Aragon, nice, comfortable lead in the championship. And, you know, with his future secured from earlier in the season, he's able to ride now just thinking in terms of pick up your points when you can, pick up your wins when they're there, and the championship just takes care of itself for him. So we had three pretty good races, and yet we had uh, what what the fifty five thousand uh, crowd, I think, something uh, something like that. It was it was the crowd numbers were about seventeen eighteen thousand down on previous years, and yet it didn't really feel like it was uh, any less busy. Yeah, David, like I was out shooting for most of the weekend, and most of the grandstands were as full as ever. The spectator banks were were pretty much the same depth as ever. I myself can't see where 15,000, 20,000 people went. And I think it could be a similar situation in some of the crowd figures that we've seen in the past. I think it was pretty much the same as ever at Silverstone. If you compare it to what they get for the Formula 1 race, it's 120,000. There's six or seven grandstands not being used for the GP that are used for Formula 1. So for me, it all tallies in as this is pretty much what we've always had at Silverstone. Yeah, well, we've we've got the complicated situation where um, this race was was still well. It started under the auspices of the Circuit of Wales because they had the contract. Then the Circuit of Wales um, uh, ended up not getting the financial support from the government from the Welsh government, which they needed to actually uh, make the project go forward. And so Silverstone took over the running of the uh, of the project. Now, perhaps that may have had a little bit of a uh, uh, of an influence, but it, I can't see that it would make that much difference. It was on a bank week, a bank holiday weekend, so people were available. You know, kids had to, had the time off school, uh, but perhaps people chose the bank holiday weekend to to go somewhere else. Uh, the, but the numbers, I mean, it feels a lot like the situation in um, in Jerez, where all of a sudden the numbers uh, suddenly halved uh, because the um, uh, the mayor of Jerez decided to announce the uh, crowd numbers on the grid, um, and those numbers were basically half of what the official figures had been uh, in previous year, e- in previous years. Even though it looked exactly as busy as every other race, so uh, at Jerez. So I, I mean, crowd numbers seem to be a little bit of a dark art. That, that, well, a dark art. Um, sometimes it feels like people are just making it up as they go along. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say, but what about the future? I mean, where, where will the British Grand Prix be next year? Because there were also questions about, uh, about the, the, the track really is starting to need to be resurfaced, resurfaced because of the bumps. Well, for me, Dave, like I go to Donington with World SBK. We've gone the last couple of years where I've been there and, uh, there's no way Donington can possibly host a British Grand Prix. I think anyone that thinks Donington is a suitable Grand Prix circuit anymore is just fanciful. The track is mega. It's Fans are allowed to get right, right up close to it. Photographers have a better day there. Cameras are, are in a better location. It looks absolutely fantastic when bikes are out on track. But the pit lane, the paddock, the garages, parking, all these things are completely outdated. You're, you don't have any hard standing car parks. They're all in fields. They're all on grass. The paddock needs an awful lot of work. It would be fantastic if we went to Donington, but Silverstone is the only Grand Prix facility in the UK. It wouldn't be fantastic for me because I wouldn't be able to stay for my mum and I'd actually have to pay for I'd actually have to pay for a hotel. So uh... there's the decision made, Dave. <laughs> 
bring that up with Carmelo, Dave, and uh, you know, I'm sure we can work something out. Exactly. Um, uh, obviously, MSV has taken over. Um, uh, has taken over Donington now. Can they? Or do, do you think they're willing to spend the money? Because it would be, you know, probably a couple of million to bring it up to scratch. Would are MSV willing to spend that much money on the track? They're capable of spending that money on the track. Whether they're willing to is another issue. I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they did look in the future to be able to do it. But the last time that someone tried to spend money to do up Donington, it nearly cost us Donington Park. That was whenever you ended up in the situation where Donington won the rights to the F1 race. I think it was about 2004, 2005. And uh, basically they did loads of work on Donington, turned the whole place into a massive building site. And uh, it took years to recover from it. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, money on the table. Um, uh, where will the British Grand Prix be held in 2018? First of all, Neil. Uh, Wales. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, uh, Silverstone, I'll say. Uh, Steve? Uh, it's, as I said, there's nowhere other than Silverstone to host British Grand Prix. Um, I have to agree with that. I think it's going to be uh, uh, Silverstone. It might be Donington Park at, at some point in the future, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Dorner agrees in terms of contracts. Uh, right, now then, our winners and losers for the weekend. Steve, as you are an occasional guest uh, on uh, on here, or an occasional guest, you're uh, obviously a... a, a a, a mega host who hasn't been on for a little while, so you get to you get to go first. Who's your winners? Uh, who's your winners this weekend? Well, as you could hear from me today, David, I'm still pretty far out of the loop in MotoGP. Just sort of chat to a few people here and there now at this stage. But my biggest winner is basically, if you look at what I can judge it by, is from Coda until now, the biggest winner for me is just MotoGP in general. It just we keep getting better and better races. The series keeps delivering. I think we've had what five different winners, ten different podium men we've had four different pole men we've just had a year where everything's been absolutely immense the racing keeps getting better the closest championship fight any of us can remember we're in a golden era of MotoGP and for fans and the series that's the big winner for me hard to uh, disagree with that what about your loser well again looking at it in a similar way the last time I was at a Grand Prix was in Coda and coming into Coda Vinales had won the opening two races obviously he had his crash in Coda but he was fast the whole weekend looked like the only rider that was going to be able to take the fight to Marquez but since then biggest loser for me is Yamaha because up until you know a, a handful of races they've just been further and further back they've just not not kept the momentum we all thought they'd have after Vinales was dominating the uh, the winter tests and those opening couple of rounds, uh, that sounds uh, fair enough. Um, it's yeah, I mean, it is it is hard to argue with the fact that that uh, Yamaha have pretty uh, rough time over the over the past few months. I, I also probably should add as well, like it's easy to say Yamaha has dropped the ball; they've gone uh, off the pace. But as I said as well, we are in this golden era of MotoGP. Yeah. If you're at ninety nine percent, you're going to be nowhere. Yeah, exactly. It's different from uh, from sort of you know two thousand nine, uh, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, where if you were just a little bit off, you'd still be you know in the fight for a podium. Neil, your um, uh, your winner for the weekend. Yeah, um, it's not the most original choice, but um, considering um, we're we're kind of covering uh, Austria here as well, I'm going to go with uh, with Davizioso because um, you know Austria was almost expected for him he managed to pull that off uh, in spite of uh, Marquez's closest attentions um, but his ride in Silverstone was just uh, so so thought out uh, so measured um, so clinical and 
you know, I think this is the this is more than any other victory that he's had this year. This is the race where I came away from uh, thinking that okay, right, we've got a guy that can really you know uh, go all the way, and um, you know he's exceeded expectations pretty much throughout the year. But this race, I I, I know when I was thinking of who was going to be challenging on Saturday evening, Davizioso didn't even come close. You know, I thought uh, the other four guys that were there, yes, definitely they would be the, the four guys in, 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 in with a shot. But, um, you know, Davizioso's presence in that leading group was um, was, was one thing. And uh, for him to kind of confidently ride through it all and uh, and, and collect the win was, was something else. So, yeah, Andre Davizioso is my uh, winner of the week. He's certainly riding absolutely superbly, probably better than he's ever ridden throughout his entire career. So that's a, an entirely uh, an entirely understandable choice. What about your loser, Neil? Well, I think my loser is also uh, is, is also going to be the same as yours. So uh, so perhaps we should now turn this on to you, Dave, and say who was your winner and your loser of uh, of the British Grand Prix. And well, my 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 winner is. Uh, Quite clearly, um, Ducati. I mean, it's, it's sort, of, sort of partially agreeing with you. Yes, uh, Dovich is riding absolutely out of his skin. Um, but the, the uh, Ducati themselves, the, the basically the investment that they've made since 2013, since Gigi, Gigi Delinia took over, um, uh, the work that they've been doing on, on tyre management, um, the, the, the changes they've made to the bike, it's really, it's quite clearly, it's quite clear that, 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 I mean, it's still not a perfect bike. It's still quite a difficult bike to actually uh, get around corners. Uh, you, you really have to work on it. So it, there's still room for improvement. But if you look at what Lorenzo has been doing recently, um, if you look at you know how Petrucci has performed from uh, 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 th- throughout the season, the, the bike is really really good, and the fact that Lorenzo finishes what three three and a bit seconds off of um, uh, uh, off of the, the the winner off of his teammate, I think that's a sign that not only is Dovizioso riding fantastically. But uh, Dovichios, but uh, but the, the, the Ducati themselves are actually doing a fantastic job, and they're doing a fantastic job of preparing and um, preparing the race weekend. And your loser. And my loser, well, I mean, it's hard for me to say this because personally, I actually, I really like Bradley Smith, but Bradley is just having an absolute miserable time at KTM. There were rumours at uh, at Austria that uh, he were that, that KTM were looking at replacing him, um, and that he needs to up his game. Uh, he's had his crew chief uh, replaced. He's lost Tom uh, Tom Jojic because they're going through sort of you know all sorts of things to try and. Uh, replacing one thing at a time. Uh, they're running out of things to replace. His teammate is riding absolutely fantastically. I mean, Paul Espargaro is, is, is just really, really riding well. It's clear the KTM is um, becoming a competitive bike, and yet Bradley Smith just cannot get on with it. He's still riding around uh, at the back of the field. So it, uh, unless he... Um, finds a way to understand the bike and, 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 and start speeding up, then, then he's in real trouble. So for me, that was definitely the, uh, 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 Bradley Smith was definitely the loser of really the last two races. Yeah. And we've heard that, um, I think after the, the race in Austria, that was, that was basically the last scheduled wildcard for Mika Kallio. And now we're hearing that he's going to be, uh, wildcarding again at Aragon. Um, and, and you can't help but imagine that that is another sort of, um, G up uh, for Bradley, you know, and make it pretty much uh, outperformed him, um, you know, to a real great extent in, in Austria. You know, make it finished, I think, in the top 10. Uh, it was something like 15 seconds ahead of Bradley um, come the, the checkered flag. And 
yeah, we heard at Silverstone that KTM were going to assess the situation after the next two races. Um, you know, and and there were obviously those kind of strong words from uh, from their motorsport director Pip Byrer, um, and also from the CEO of the company uh, Stefan Pirer. They were kind of saying that um, you know if. Bradley doesn't really, you know, up his game, then Calio could be in his place for 2018 and Bradley could be relegated to the, the test rider role. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a big couple of races coming up from Bradley and, um, you know, being relegated to a test rider role would be, would be terrible for him, I think, you know, because um, obviously he's a racer. That's not uh, a situation that you want to, you want to find yourself in. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, and we've seen how quickly Paddock rumour can turn into Paddock Fact this year as well with another British rider that was under contract for two years. So hopefully for Brad, he's able to pick up his form in the next couple of rounds because he, he, he has shown in the past what he can do. His 2015 season was remarkable, but since then it's been a bit mm. of a struggle for him. And he has had, you know, he's had that situation in 2014. I think, you know, Saxon Ring was the, the sort of nadir of his MotoGP career. He crashed five times over a race weekend and it looked like he wasn't going to get renewed. Um, and he did manage to turn that turn that round you know the second half of 14 was was quite positive and then he, he you know carried that through to 15 so um you know speaking to him on thursday and friday at silverstone he, he seemed confident absolutely confident that he could turn this around but um but i guess i guess it was another difficult qualifying and difficult race uh for him so yeah fingers crossed that bradley can, can turn it around in the coming the coming weeks yeah, I mean, I had a, an informal conversation with Livio Supo over the uh, over the weekend, and we were talking about, you know, what what is it that you want from your uh, fr- from your test rider? And um, uh, I was saying, you know, well, the thing is, Bradley's really really smart, but what Supo was saying, what you really want from a a test rider is just someone who's really really mo- motivated. In terms of developing a bike, you want someone who's really motivated to go out and push the bike hard, and that is cl- quite clearly what Calio is doing because Calio is is. Uh, trying to get a job and the job he's after is uh, is Bradley Smith and uh, Bradley Smith is not pushing hard enough because he's um, uh, he's not comfortable with the bike and he's afraid of losing his job so it's a it, it's a very difficult uh, situation so uh, we shall have to wait and see how that plays out Right, I think that just about wraps it up, uh, boys. Um, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining me, both of you, dear fine gentlemen, and uh, thank you very much for your company also in Silverstone. The uh, the crack was mighty, as we like to say. Um, uh, Neil, uh, thank you very much. Thanks, dear, for having me. And uh, Stephen, thank you very much. When's your next uh, World Superbike race? I have another couple of weeks off, Dave, so it's the week after Misano is back in action for Portimao rounds. That should be a good round, good track. And uh, hopefully we'll have good racing again. Yep. Tough, tough old life as a World Superbike commentator, isn't it? Oh, I'll tell you what, it's flat out, Neil. <laughs> he has to work Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, um, uh, so anyway, thank Suzuki for sponsoring the Paddock Pass podcast. And to ask you all to go out and check out the all-new GSX-R 1000s because it's a fairly awesome bike. If you are not following us, then you ought to be. You can find us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And what you really, really, really need to do is if you are on the iTunes, you need to leave us both a rating and a review to help other people find the show. And if you leave us both a rating and a review, then there's a chance we might actually make more of these podcasts. So... Thank you very much indeed, and until the next time, goodbye. We've got mindset now. We've got batteries, bitches. Do we need to do a wee clap, boys? Batteries out the arse.
One, two, three. Oh, one. Oh, shit, it's fucking... Okay, sorry, let's do that again because I forgot to clap. One, two, three. Jesus, that was shit.